Okay, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 10 this morning, verses 1 through 12. And this isn't, this isn't an easy one for Mike to preach, so we're going to be praying that the Lord anoints him and helps us. Okay, so let's pray together first. Lord, thank you so much again for your word. And I thank you for your grace that, and just your character, God, that if we're thinking rightly about that, it helps us to accept even hard parts in your word. Because we know that you are not a... I don't know, Lord, just something that we would think a human would be like. But you're way beyond that, and you're so good, and we can trust that. And so we just commit this uh, time in your word to you. We ask you to bless your word, hard as it is, and uh, we just thank you again for your investment in us. for your love and mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall love his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. have a controversial passage today. Did you hear it? Um, I'm reminded uh, weeks like this, passages like this of 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, that word useful. So be patient today as we go through this passage. I am fully aware of the difficulty and challenge of this topic and of this passage in many people's lives. 
but all scripture is useful for us, including this passage. I hope you have your Bibles opened. Uh, If you don't, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You'll be able to follow along today. We're going to dive right into it. Mark chapter 10. We're going to look here first at verses 1 through 4. Look there with me. Mark 10 and verses 1 through 4. It says, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. So they have left base camp, that place referring to Peter's mother-in-law's home, where they a lot of the Galilean ministry has taken place. That's where they've been set up. They've left that place, and they've gone into this other region across the Jordan. Still in verse 1, again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. We have in verse 1, again, Mark showing us this incredible magnetism of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he is surrounded by massive crowds of people to the point at times we've seen in the previous chapters where they can't even have a meal together, where he can't teach his disciples because the crowds are coming in, the crowds are pressing him. Mark has a theological reason for driving this point home again and again, and this is because we are moving toward the passion, the suffering of Jesus, and the death of Jesus on the cross, this incredibly shameful thing in the first century. And and, and Mark is wanting to overcome the scandal and the shame of the cross to a first century reader and to say this was indeed the Son of God. So verse 1, we see this, this magnetism, the massive crowds are coming. And as was his custom, he taught them. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' primary point has been to teach the crowds and mostly to teach the disciples. Now, as he has been going about trying to find places to teach the disciples and to teach the crowds, he has done miraculous works. And he has shown compassion on people and he has raised the dead and he has calmed the seas and he has done all kinds of things. But what he is after is teaching, explaining that he is the Messiah and explaining the scriptures to the people. So these crowds have come and as was his custom, he taught them. Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in my Bible, I take notes in my Bible. I write in my Bible. Do we have, like, are you a note taker in your Bible? Do you write in your Bible? So I'm one of those. If you are, you know, I've got the word tested underlined. The Pharisees here are not genuine inquirers of knowledge and wisdom from Jesus. Do you see that? They're wanting to trap him. They are wanting to test him. They are actually wanting to kill him, as we'll see as we move through the Gospel of Mark. They are not really interested in true teaching about divorce and remarriage. They are wanting to trap him. They are wanting to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds to this question with another question. What did Moses command you? Jesus is pointing the Pharisees to the Word of God. What did Moses command you? What does the scripture say? It would be another way, but he, another way to say that. But Jesus is identifying the one that they look to. They look to Moses. They are not looking to Jesus. They do not like Jesus. They like Moses and what he wrote. And so Jesus turns the question back on them. What did Moses command you? 
they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So this is where we start to get into controversy. So we have to understand some background to understand this passage. What is going on in the minds of Jesus and the minds of the Pharisees here is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So let's take a look at that together on the screen. This is foundational in understanding today's passage. If a man, this is Deuteronomy 24, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, this is the key phrase I've put in green, and we'll come back to that. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a, cert- and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh. Do not bring sin upon the land of Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. So this controversial passage we're into just got more controversial, right, as we look now at Deuteronomy 24. So the first thing I want to say about this passage is the, what the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus with in and about is the interpretation of that phrase. They are, in essence, saying to Jesus, trying to trap him, what's your view on what is the legitimate basis for an ancient Israelite to send his wife away? What does it mean to find something indecent about her? There were different schools of thought about what this phrase means. And the Pharisees are banking on the fact that Jesus' understanding of that phrase is different than theirs. And they are wanting to trap him. So you tracking with me so far? So I also have to say some things about this passage, right? Because, I mean, is this somewhat of a disturbing passage as you read this? So when we read disturbing passages, like if you've never read this passage before and and maybe the Bible's new to you and you're saying God inspired this, you're like, what? I'm not sure I like the God that might inspire this. Like, what? Sending your wife away, you can write her a certificate of divorce. What, what, what is going on here? So, when we have those kinds of responses, maybe the first thing for me to say is the problem is always with us. Okay, when we have a problem, when we read a passage of Scripture, and it seems to actually be something that God wouldn't have written or inspired by the Holy Spirit, the, the, the problem is always with us, and we need help. We either need learning or we need illumination by the Holy Spirit. So to, to try and give some of that to this passage, going back to the ancient Israelite context, men regularly abused women. Women did not have the kind of dignity and, and worth in society that they should have. And because of this, both in Israelite culture and in uh, other ancient Near Eastern cultures of the first century, women, including wives, were sometimes sent away and even traded and brought back 
that sort of thing. Terrible. It's wrong. So what we have in this passage is God inspiring his word to deal with a terrible problem that is going on. What is going on here is the certificates of divorce are written, as we're going to see as we go through this passage, in the ancient Israelite context, are written not because God is sanctioning divorce, but because he wants to protect wives who are being shuffled around. And if you send your wife away, don't think that you're going to get her back when you want her back. Do you see that now? So uh, anybody need more help with that? Serious here. We're like in a classroom setting now. Do you see that? Do you see that God is good behind this passage? Because it sounds like God's supporting uh, something that not only feminists hate, but godly people hate. That is the abuse of women by men. So, so they're trying, back to Jesus now, back to the Pharisees, they're trying to trap him. What's your view? What is something indecent about her that gives us validation to send our wives away? What's your view, Jesus? So let's come back to our text. So here's Jesus' response. Where are we? I'm at verse 5, right? So, so uh, he, he sends, he says, uh, they say, Moses, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So here's Jesus' response in verse 5. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Moses wrote you this law because you were doing, and other cultures as well, were doing what they shouldn't have been doing in the abuse of their wives in sending them away. That's why this was written. So Jesus is kind of blowing up. They're thinking, are you interpretation A or are you interpretation B? Are you conservative or are you liberal on Deuteronomy 24? And Jesus is saying, you are completely misunderstanding Deuteronomy 24. One, uh, one commentator writes this. He says, Jesus' purpose is to make clear that the intention of Deuteronomy 24.1 was not to make divorce acceptable, but to limit sinfulness and to control its consequences. And I'm saying especially to control the consequences to women who were treated like property, didn't have a say in things, and were moved around. At the very least, if you're going to do that, you're going to write a certificate of divorce, and you're not going to send your wife off to some other guy and then get, him, get her back when you've decided you want her back. That's, that's not happening. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about. And Jesus is saying, this is the only reason that passage is in the law that is in the Torah. I'm not going to side with you on these various interpretations. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that either because it's not that relevant to us. But there were more conservative and more liberal interpretations on what is the biblical basis, what is the valid basis in ancient Israelite culture to send your wife away. So, what we have here is Jesus shocking the Pharisees by replacing Moses' law regarding divorce with his own. He is basically 
undoing, replacing Deuteronomy 24 with him coming as the Messiah and about to establish a new covenant, we are going to operate in a new way. And Deuteronomy 24, along with lots of other things in the Old Testament, the laws about food and other things, are going to be replaced in light of the new covenant. They're still useful. They're still scripture, but they're not binding on on us. Jesus is doing something unbelievable and unexpected by the Pharisees here. They're saying, are you option A or are you option B? And he says, actually, I am doing a whole new thing, and you have completely misunderstood this passage. So, let's continue on uh, in in the text here, verses 6 through 9. It's because of your hardness of hearts that you have Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here Jesus is going back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, quoting these key passages about marriage. And the two will become one flesh, the emphasis here on one, and the inseparability, the indissolubility of marriage. This is God's intent. They're asking him about Deuteronomy 24. He's sending them back to Genesis 1 and 2, verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So, the thinking on the ground of the Pharisees and of the ancient Israelite culture in that day was there are various reasons for divorce and there's some debate about what those reasons are. And Jesus, in essence, is saying there are no valid reasons for divorce. What God has joined together, man should not separate. You could see how this would just infuriate these guys, many of whom have sent their wives away, I would assume, with certificates of divorce. He's saying no. Now, Mark is the abbreviated gospel In the other Gospels, the disciples freak out here. We don't have that. Well, they're like, well, what can we do then? How can we even marry? Should we even marry? Like, what? Are you kidding me? We can't send her away? This is shocking what he's doing. One commentator uh, writes this. says, Mark allows the reversal of Moses' law regulating divorce to stand last in the pericope, last in this unit of scripture, as an example of his teaching. Astonishing in its radicality. Astonishing in its argument. Astonishing in its authority. As the power of Jesus' miracles recedes from view, his pronunciatory power comes forward in even more detail. This isn't just about divorce and remarriage. This is about the authority and power of Jesus. Jesus is able to say, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is no longer binding. You misunderstood it. This is not what they wanted to hear. This is not what they were expecting. The King James Version uh, is often quoted in wedding ceremonies and so on. Chapter 10 and verse 9, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Let man not separate. 
let man not divorce. My will for my people is that they would remain one until death do us part. This is what Jesus is saying. I went on my computer today. I've got a little, not today, this week, and have a little uh, folder of uh, all kinds of things, right? We've got millions of folders on our computers. We have a little wedding folder. And I click on that, and it has all the weddings I've done, all the different, all the different people. I clicked on that, and I chose one of the wedding ceremonies from the past. In fact, it was John and, and Katie Sardella's wedding ceremony I clicked on. And I just cut and pasted their first part of their vows, what we call the betrothal vows. I want to just read them uh, to you. John and Katie, many of you don't know them. They're not here today. Some of you know them. Some of you don't. But their, their daughter was baptized just a few weeks ago here, uh, Mariah. But let me just read these vows. I say to the couple, the vows you now take are sacred. I'm going to read their names here. John, do you solemnly agree before God and these witnesses to take Katie to be your lawful wedded wife, to love her and respect her, to honor her and cherish her in health and sickness and prosperity and adversity and leaving all others to keep yourself only to her so long as you both shall live? He says, I do. I say virtually the same thing for Katie. Every wedding ceremony I've done, I think every wedding ceremony I've been to is based on this truth right here. And we ask couples to make vows based on this truth right here. There are no exception clauses in the vows that I printed out that we said. If any of you had exception clauses in your vows, see me after the service. I've never been to, I've been to more weddings probably than I've done. I, I don't think I've ever heard them. What if my wife um, contracts AIDS from a hospital transfusion, something like that? I committed to her till death. What if my husband becomes mentally ill? I don't even know if I can live with him anymore. He's dangerous, trouble. I committed vows until death. He may need to separate if he's violent or dangerous or abusive. You need to separate. If he's, let me say that correctly. Abusive. Dangerous, violent, you need to separate. And yet we are, can remain faithful to our vows even when we separate. The way that we conduct our vows and the things that we say are in line with what Jesus was saying here in Mark chapter 10. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Why? why? Why aren't there some ways out? Why, why Mike, aren't you going to spend some time right now on some exceptions where, you know, if, if this happens, then, you know, you're out. First of all, if that's what the scriptures teach, we should include that in our vows. We should include that in our premarital counseling. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. I don't include that. I don't know anyone else that does. But I think I do know the reason why, because Jesus tells us this is his theology of marriage. This is his will 
for individual believers who are following Christ. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at it on the screen. He says there again, Paul is quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. And he says this shocking thing, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The New Testament theology for, for Christian marriage is that a Christian marriage is something that is designed to point us and to point the world to Christ's love for his bride, the church. Going all the way back to Genesis, this is the reason, in part, God, the, the relevant reason that God has made marriage is so that our exclusive commitment to one another, to sacrifice to each other, for each other, to love one another, to serve one another. In, in this exclusive context, one of the reasons we have this is to point ourselves and to point others to Christ and the church. It is a, a pointer, a drama, a model. So, when we say, I'm out, this is too hard, and it is really hard, and it is really painful, and it, sometimes it seems like two people are not compatible, more on that in, in, later. When we go that route, we are saying, we are communicating something entirely opposite than what God wants to communicate through our, our sinful and struggling and conflict-laden marriages. He wants the gospel to be applied in our exclusive commitment to one another until death to model the, and display and point to the kind of love that Jesus has for his church, which is, I'm willing to die on the cross for those who don't deserve it, who haven't earned it, who haven't kept up their end. Jesus is willing to do that for his bride and as husbands and wives, we are called to do whatever we are called to do, whatever lowly acts of service, whatever kinds of sacrifice to love one another. So this is the reason for verse, verse where am I? Verse 9. That God has joined together. Let man not separate. One commentator writes this. He says, the union of man and wife in marriage prefigures and points to the reality of the union between Christ, the last Adam, and his bride, the church. This is a profound mystery. Quoting Ephesians 5, profound mystery because no one could have understood Genesis 2.24 in this way apart from God's revelation. We, we learn through the Gospels and through the New Testament really much more fully about what marriage is all about that was kind of not there. Certainly, the Pharisees were far from understanding this. Jesus is yet to die and be raised. And so, they're all confused. The disciples are confused, too. Jesus is shocking the Pharisees. And he's shocking the reader of Mark's gospel about his view of the permanence and the indissolubility of Christian marriage. One, um, hang on, I'm not there yet. I'm using a new thing. How do I go back? Don't read that. Don't read that. Um, I'm not there yet. Come back to our text. 
So we're finished with verse 9. Let's take a look at verse 10. When they were in the house, so, so they're all together here. He said this to the Pharisees and to the crowd, everybody that's there. And then there's a, a, some time that elapses between verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Again, other gospels ex- explain more of this, what's, what's going on. But now they're, they're in the house, and the disciples asked Jesus about this. They're, they're wondering, okay, we need some help here. What, what, what are you saying? So he clarifies, verse 11. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Clarifying what he said in verse 9, he's saying it in an explicit way and saying more than that in verse 11. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Now, in my Bible, I've underlined that phrase, against her. This is what this next comment is about. This commentator writes this about that little phrase, against her. The addition of this phrase against her has the purpose of heightening the explosive force of Jesus' pronouncement. In the Greco-Roman world of Mark's audience, most people understand Mark, the audience of Mark's gospel to be the Greco-Roman world. So in the Greco-Roman world of Mark's audience and in the Jewish world of Jesus' audience, the actual historical setting that Jesus is in in this chapter, a man is thought to commit adultery against the husband of a woman with whom he commits adultery, but not against his own wife. Jesus upsets the norm. It's kind of interesting when only men write the rules how they write the rules, isn't it? Did you know this about first century culture, both Jewish and secular culture, that a man could not commit adultery against his wife? He committed adultery against the guy, the woman that he got together with, committed adultery against her husband. That's how they were working and operating, both secular and Jewish culture. So Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, he's saying to us, hey, church, he's saying, when you do this, you commit adultery against her. That wife has dignity and value and worth just as you do. And you ought not to do this. Why? Because marriage is designed to point people to the beautiful and undying and unequivocal love that Christ has for his bride, the church. This isn't an, uh, two of the world-class commentators, uh, Gundry and, and Lane, are the ones I'm, I'm comment. Uh, this, this isn't an isolated thing. Uh, Lane writes this. He says, the new element in this teaching, this verse we're looking at, which was totally unrecognized in the rabbinic courts, was the concept of the husband committing adultery against his former wife. And a wife could commit adultery against her husband by infidelity, but a husband could not be said to commit adultery against his wife. Jesus is changing that. And he's making this really hard for those who want divorce as a way out. So Jesus is shocking the Pharisees, not only by disallowing divorce, but by telling them that they violate the seventh commandment against one's wife, against one's wife, not a woman's husband. So then to just cover all of his bases, let's turn now to verse 12. This will be the last verse we look at, and then we're going to apply this passage in the rest of our time, and we'll finish up. Verse 12, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, 
she commits adultery. So here, Jesus is recognizing something that's just coming on the scene in Greco-Roman culture in places like Rome, and something that has yet to come on the scene in Jewish culture, that is that women are going to be divorcing their husbands. And Jesus is saying, if that happens, and she marries another man, she commits adultery. The implication also is that this would be against her husband, but that's not needed to be said here, because men rule the world at this point, and that correction isn't needed. So Jesus shocks the Pharisees over and over. Um, I'm sorry, comment here from, from Gundry again. He says, God's ordinance, evident since creation, makes divorce an instrument of sin instead of a way to avoid it. Divorce leads to adultery through another marriage. It does not free from adultery in another marriage. The Pharisees were using the certificate of divorce to rationalize their own sin and to commit adultery. Jesus is making this really clear. He's talked about it from both perspectives. He said it generically, and then he said it in these two different ways in verse 10 and in 11 and now in verse 12. So he shocks the Pharisees implicitly and powerfully, acknowledging that wives will divorce, not only husbands. Not just husbands are going to be divorcing, but wives are also going to be divorcing. Now, wives could flee their husbands. They could run away. They could end that relationship, as it were. But wives in Jewish culture could not write a certificate of divorce. And and it was just coming on the scene in Roman culture and secular uh, Roman Empire where wives were able to do that. It was just, just coming to be. Okay, so we have gone through the word now. So how do we respond to this passage? And I know there can be a a whole variety of emotions and thoughts out there. And so I I hope I'm able to address some of them. I want to invite you to talk with me and talk with others this week if, if I'm not hitting things that maybe the Lord has brought up in your mind or heart in response to today's passage. But I've got five things. I'm going to go through them very briefly with A through E here. So the first thing I want to say is divorcees, many of us here today are divorcees, divorcees who remarry are forgiven and should remain faithful to their current spouse. So a takeaway from this passage, a wrong takeaway from this passage is for those who have been divorced and remarried or divorced and remarried several times to just feel miserable and awful which is very possible, that's why I'm talking about it. That would be the wrong way to respond to this passage. The reasons for divorce and re- remarriage are complex, and so I can't really speak to those in, a, in your specific situation. But what I, I want to highlight is that divorcees and those who have been remarried have not committed the unpardonable sin. In essence, there is no unpardonable sin Don't want to get into this too much today, but we've covered this before. The unpardonable sin is when, during Jesus' earthly ministry, this is my understanding of what the unpardonable sin is. The unpardonable sin is during Jesus' earthly ministry, when he did something like raise a dead girl to life, and people there attributed the power that Jesus did that by as Satan's power. Instead of the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's unforgiven. 
every other sin that you and I commit is forgiven. And so the way, to re- the way for any of us, including divorcees and those who have been re- remarried, to respond to this passage is, I am going to have, by God's grace, I am going to have the kind of commitment to my spouse that points me and points others to the, to the love that Christ has for, for the church, my current spouse. That's the way to respond to today's passage. Divorcees who remarry are forgiven, should remain faithful to their current spouse. The sin of remarriage that Jesus is referring to here is not something that stays with you for your entire life or your marriage. I've never heard anyone teach that, but I've heard that people teach that. That is not true. The gospel applies to every single one of our sins. Is that good news? That is such good news. Whatever your sin is, and I'm guessing there are sins out there, secret sins that you maybe haven't confessed to a brother or sister. Whatever that sin is, when you repent and ask God forgiveness, his grace comes to you and you are new and forgiven. The gospel is so beautiful. Our God is so gracious. That's maybe the loudest thing I want to say to many of you here this morning is this point A. The rest of these are going to go quickly through these. So, uh, so B. Everyone is incompatible. By the laughs, I probably don't have to say a whole lot there. I think you might know what I mean. We're all incompatible. It is a common thing. Uh, after six months, after the honeymoon, after a year, after a decade, I learned we're not c- compatible. Meaning, my spouse, terrible. Yeah, that's the boat we're all in. To varying degrees, okay? There are varying degrees. But we are all in that boat. My wife knows my sins in a way that you don't. She knows she knows how terrible I am in many ways. More than anyone else other than the Lord. We're all incompatible. Tim Keller writes this. He says, we always marry the wrong person. Some people are really, really the wrong people to marry, but everyone else is still incompatible. I think what he means when he says some people are really, really the wrong people, I mean, there are situations like, I don't know for sure what he means. If I ever meet him, I'll ask him. But I think what he means is there might be a situation where someone marries someone uh, and they realize that, that later that week after they, they marry, they realize he actually has a different name and he has another wife and he has a family. Okay, that, that's really marrying the wrong person. Okay, So aside from something like that, every one of us has married someone that's incompatible. We're sinners. Yes, our identity is in Christ. We are saints We heard this message strongly a few weeks ago. It is absolutely true, but we are also people who sin and who are in battle and who are in war. And that war is not going to end this side of glory. So in our marriages, we're going to have conflict. We're going to be incompatible. But by God's grace, he helps us to love each other and to forgive each other. Dick isn't here today. I was glancing into the back row. Some of you recognize he's not here today, but Dick Carter He's often standing out in the front, greeting folks. Tall, gray-haired man. He's in his 90s. 
this summer, he and his wife, Avalon, I visit them in their home. She is not here very often on Sunday morning, and he's often caring for her. That's probably what he's doing today. This summer, they celebrate 65 years of, of incompatibility. And if you get to know them, they are still, I mean, they go at it still. But by God's grace, he has kept them together. And he's staying home most Sundays now and serving her as, as she's moved. It's going to start to tear up here as she's moved from, from the bedroom. She's got her bed in the living room now. She's not doing real well. He's there serving her and loving her. We're all incompatible people by the grace of God were enabled to be married for 65 years of beautiful things. Spirit-filled application of the gospel makes two sinful people more than compatible. This is what I'm trying to say. I've already said this. The Holy Spirit and the grace of God make sinful people whose identity in, who is in Christ and who are, are believers, he makes marriages beautiful things like the Carters. Again, uh, Tim Keller writes this. This book is my favorite book on marriage. He says, to my wife, I'm Superman. To be highly esteemed by someone you highly esteem is the greatest thing in the world. So we're incompatible, but our marriages can be beautiful and glorious things by the grace of God. And, and Tim and Kathy Keller have been applying the gospel. I don't know. They've been married for many, many decades to each other. I don't know them personally. My son and I had a chance to go to their church in Manhattan uh, not too many months ago. But I, I know that their marriage is a beautiful thing. I'm guessing their marriage is a lot like my mother and father-in-law. My mother-in-law is with the Lord now. Just, you don't have to be a believer. You don't have to be spiritually mature to see the beauty and glory of a marriage where the gospel has been applied and where people have been strengthened and are very quick to forgive each other and to pray for each other and to serve each other and to love each other. So spirit-filled application of the gospel makes two sinful people more than compatible. Let's finish up here. Just about done. Two more points. Your spouse alone must be your BFF. Young people, what does this mean? Am I like really in touch with texting now? Am I like... Am I cool? Best friend forever? Um, our spouse, I mean, we, to, be te- to be precise here, we need to change that forever thing because we'll, when we get to Mark um, chapter 12, I think we're going we're gonna to learn there and we learn elsewhere that, that there isn't marriage in heaven. There isn't the giving and taking of marriage uh, after the resurrection in heaven. So but your, your best friend, this side of heaven, needs to be your spouse. And if that's not the case, you need to be praying that you're on the way to that being the case. Again, Tim Keller writes this. He says, your spouse has got to be your best friend or be on the way to becoming your best friend or you won't have a strong, rich marriage that endures and that makes you both vastly better persons for having been in it. So our relationships with others, guys hanging out with other guys and doing guy stuff, it's important. It's, it's, it's really important. Girls hanging out with other ladies and girlfriends, it, it's important. It's more than important. It's, it's, it's really vital. But the primary relationship 
It may, this may not be the reality in your marriage, but you need to be longing that the primary relationship in your life is the marriage with your spouse. So you might say, oh, yeah, I, I would like that, but I, I, I don't, I, I'm saying ask God to do a miracle and long for that. Those of you in marriages that, that are going, yeah, my marriage isn't like that. My marriage isn't like that. My marriage isn't like that. I understand their degrees, but our God is greater than even the most severe of those degrees. Do you believe that? Your spouse alone must be your best friend forever. And then finally, last thing is, husbands, lead. This is a response to today's passage. Husbands, lead our wives not by having authority and sending them away or, or whatever the equivalent of that might look like today. I'm in charge, be quiet, you don't have a voice here. That's not how godly husbands lead their wives. Husbands lead by applying the gospel first during conflict. All marriages have conflict. None of us are compatible. And so husbands lead by saying something like, in conflict, how have I failed in loving you? And we have to ask that question, especially husbands. I'm talking to you now and future husbands, young men. We have to ask that question, especially when we feel like she's failed and I haven't. Those are the most important times to ask that question. Because, guys, we are often blind to how we have failed. And so we need to ask that question. This is what leadership, this is what headship in Christian marriage looks like. By taking the lead and applying the gospel and asking how I have failed and when she says, here's how you failed, Mike, then I say, if I can, by the grace of God, right? A lot of times we want to walk away, and we might need to do that, depending on what's about to come out of our mouths. But once I've walked away, once I've been yielded to the Spirit, once I've recognized, I say, yeah, I did do that. I did blow it. Will you forgive me for that? Yes. And then we embrace, and then we move forward, and our marriage gets strengthened through trials and conflict instead of getting further and further and further incompatible. I think I'm done other than we need to get our AC going. Are you guys sweating? Yeah, I'm not sure what happened today, so sorry for that comment. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to pray today especially for those who have been divorced and remarried. I pray that you protect them from the evil one, from discouragement, from shame. I pray, Lord, that all of us would have great optimism and hope in relying upon your grace and the power of the gospel to make even the most incompatible, dysfunctional, broken marriage beautiful. Lord, give us patience in wanting to see beauty in our marriages. I'm praying for those who really are far from seeing beauty in their marriages right now. I pray that, that you would give them patience, Lord, and that their first and primary place of refuge and longing would be for you. And out of that, that you would do something. Lord, I'm praying for those marriages that are, that are so in tough places right now, that you would do something by your grace. We thank you for your word even hard sections of it. Help us when we read your word and think, I don't get this, I don't like you, God. Help us to do the work, to study, to rely on your spirit, to see that your word is good, true, and right, and pure, and right, and loving. 
we thank you for it. In Jesus' name.